0: Greetings. My name is Stan Prager from the Regarp book blog, www.regarp.com. Today's podcast features my review of The Children of Athena Greek Intellectuals in the Age of Rome, 150 BC to 400 AD, by Charles Freeman. In 399 BCE, Socrates was condemned to death, a tragic punctuation mark to the celebrated 5th century that at Athens and Sparta and the multitude of other polis witnessed first the repulse of the mighty Persian Empire the flourish that was the age of Pericles, and then the carnage of the Peloponnesian War that for nearly three decades battered Greek civilization and culminated in Athenian defeat. In that same era, hardly anyone had heard of Rome, humiliated just shortly thereafter when sacked by Gauls in 390 BCE. A mere century and a half later, the Greeks were themselves subjects of a Rome that had become master of the Mediterranean. But in victory or defeat, sovereign or not, the pulse never failed to beat in the polis or beyond it the life of socrates likely embellished was told most famously by plato who founded his academy in athens in 387 bce plato's pupil aristotle later established his own school the lyceum and served as tutor to alexander the great who in his vast conquest spread hellenism across the east by the time that egypt The last parcel of territory once claimed by Alexander fell to Roman rule in 31 BCE. Greek thought prevailed more than a thousand miles from Attica and the Peloponnesus, and it was to dominate Roman intellectual life for centuries to come. As Roman poet Horace once observed, captive Greece took captive her savage conqueror and brought the arts to rustic latium. That story is subject to a superlative treatment in the Children of Athena Greek Intellectuals in the Age of Rome, 150 BC to 400 AD, a fascinating and engaging work that is the latest to spring from the extremely talented pen of acclaimed classicist Charles Freeman. In a departure from the thick tomes and deep dives into intellectual history that have made his reputation, such as the closing of the Western Mind and its sequel of sorts, The Reopening of the Western Mind, this delightful survey sacrifices none of the scholarship Freeman is known for, while expanding his appeal to both an academic and a popular audience. Even better, the volume is structured such that it can just as suitably be approached as a random perusal of -of out-of-sequence episodes as a cover-to-cover read. Books of history often have a slow build, but not this one. The reader is instantly hooked by the prologue, which features an adaptation of The Banquet, a hilarious satirical work by Lucian of Samosata, a second century CE Hellenized Syrian who wrote in Greek that has representatives of virtually every school of philosophy attending a wedding feast that degenerates from debate and dispute to debauchery, and even a full-scale brawl. Attendees include Stoics, Platonists, peripatetics, epicureans, cynics, and various hangers-on. The point, of course, for the purpose of Freeman's work is both the considerable diversity that was manifested in Greek thought, as well as how prevalent that proved to be in the immensity of an empire that stretched from Mauritania to Armenia. To animate this compelling cultural history, Freeman has chosen a select group of representative figures. Those grounded in the classics will recognize most, if perhaps not all of them, which only serves as underscore to the sheer numbers of Greeks who took leading roles in Roman life over the many hundreds of years that spanned the time when Greece succumbed to Roman conquest in the 2nd century BCE, to the fall of Rome in the West in the 5th century CE. There are philosophers, of course, such as Epictetus and Plotinus, but there is also the historian Polybius, the biographer Plutarch, the geographer Strabo, the Traveler, Pausanias, the Astronomer, Ptolemy, the Surgeon, Galen, and a dozen others. Chapters for each are comprised of biographical sketches with an exploration of their significance as well as the imprint their legacies left upon later Western civilization. Included too are a number of interludes that explore wider themes to better place these individuals in context to their times. Rome's was a martial society not known for organic cultural achievements, at least not until much later in the course of its history. Greek art and epic, already deeply influential on the Etruscans that Rome supplanted in their geography, came to fill that vacuum. The syncretism that gradually integrated Greek mythology into equivalent Roman gods and goddesses, with appropriate name changes, similarly saw Greek culture increasingly borrowed and incorporated over time, even as this latter process met with a sometimes fierce resistance by conservative Roman elites. Philosophy proved especially unwelcome at first, as perhaps best highlighted in a report by Plutarch of an Athenian delegation to Rome in 155 BCE that saw a certain Carneades, a philosopher associated with anti-dogmatic skepticism, argued convincingly to an audience in favor of one proposition the first day, only to return the next and masterfully rebut his own position, to the horror of Cato the Elder. But such attitudes were not to prevail. Greek philosophy was to dominate Roman intellectual life, even as Christianity gained traction, and some of Freeman's Greeks are in fact Christian, until repressed by the church in the last decades prior to the fall of Rome. This was especially facilitated by the Pax Romana that characterized the first two centuries of empire, a period of relative peace and stability that allowed ideas, including spirited philosophical debate, to spread freely across long distances. The emperor Marcus Aurelius was himself a Stoic philosopher. Freeman's book demonstrates the vitality of Greek thought and Roman life not merely through the various schools of philosophy but even more importantly in the realms of science, medicine, and scholarship. Long ago, in my own studies of ancient Greece, I read both Polybius and Plutarch, while carelessly overlooking the implications in that these were Greeks who resided in Rome. Plutarch himself even became a Roman citizen. It is a telling reminder that Greeks remained a critical influence upon Western civilization, long after their city-states ceased to be anything other than place names on Roman maps. I once ran across a claim of Christian triumphalism in the literature that argued that the rise of Christianity was enabled by a paganism that had so run its course that it had doomed itself to obsolescence, leading a gaping spiritual hole that begged for a new, more fulfilling religious experience for the masses. It's a nice fairy tale for the faithful, but lacks support in the scholarship. Even as the catastrophic notion of the demise of polytheism associated with Gibbon has given way to the more realistic, long and slow view by historians, it is often surprising to discover how vibrant paganism remained well into late antiquity. And the best evidence for that is the flourishing of Greek philosophy and the paganism associated with it in the Roman world, both which finally fell victim to the totalitarianism of the early Christian Church, that at first discouraged and later prohibited anything that strayed from established doctrine. With that in mind, The Children of Athena serves as a kind of prequel to Freeman's magnificent The Closing of the Western Mind, which chronicled the course of events that came to crush independent inquiry for a millennium to follow in the Western world. There is possibly no more chilling metaphor for this than in one of the final chapters of The Children of Athena that is given to Hypatia, a Neoplatonist philosopher and mathematician who lived in Alexandria, Egypt in the twilight of the empire. Hypatia, the rare female of her times who was a philosophical and scientific thinker, fell afoul of a local bishop and was murdered by a Christian mob that stripped her naked and scraped her to death with shards of roof tiles. And so the Western mind indeed did close. For the record, I've come to know Charles Freeman over the years, and we correspond via email from time to time. I read portions of drafts of The Children of Athena as it was coming together and offered my ideas, for whatever those might be worth, to help polish the narrative. As such, I was honored to see my name appear in the book's acknowledgments, but I'm not a paid reviewer, and I would never praise a title that did not warrant it, regardless of my connection to the author. I genuinely enjoyed it, and would highly recommend it. This is, in fact, one of those works that is difficult to fault, despite my glaring critical eye. Freeman's depth in the field is on display and impressive, as is his ability to articulate a wide range of sometimes arcane concepts in a comprehensible fashion. I suppose if I were to find a flaw, it would be for the lack of much-needed back matter. Readers may bemoan the absence of a cast of characters to catalog the names of the major and minor individuals that occur in the text, a key to philosophical schools and unfamiliar terminology, as well as maps of ancient cities and towns. Still, That is a minor quibble that should best be taken up with the publisher rather than the author, and hardly diminishes the overall achievement of this book, which does include copious notes and a fine concluding chapter that, for my part, found me motivated to go back to my own shelves and read more about the men and women that people the children of Athena. Thank you for joining me for today's podcast. I encourage you to share it in your network. Many more reviews on an eclectic array of fiction and nonfiction books are available at regarp.com and regarpbookblogpod.com. Have a great day.